I'm Alex. And I'm Matt, and welcome back to the show. Our guest this week is Bruce Smith, founder of a company called Hydro, a new startup that's making waves in the athletics and innovation areas. So what does Hydro do? Yeah, so this was a really interesting episode. Uh, Bruce Smith is a friend of mine. Uh, I've known him for a while. We've worked on a bunch of different projects together, uh, including Middle Eastern rowing. And he used to be the director of the largest community rowing effort in the United States in Boston called Community Rowing uh, on the Charles River. And he had an idea about launching an entirely new type of machine that people could use in their homes. And uh, this podcast is really the story about how Hydro came together. And it's a rowing machine, but kind of a, a peloton for, for rowing machines, if you will. And it's not it's designed for mass market, for people who want a good workout and all that sort of thing, but are also interested in rowing. Um, I think what's interesting about this show is that um, it's very practical in application. So anyone interested in how sort of teams come together, how ideas are built, um, and fleshed out and um, how they receive funding will find this interesting. Um, to put a number on it, he just raised another $30 million uh, this year. And so we really take this idea from, um, you know, its, its beginning days, its origins, and uh, into physically manufacturing something, building it, getting support for it. And uh, people are loving it, and uh, he's growing and growing. Very cool. And of course, this is another of Matt's solo episodes. So, you know, our audience knows this is going to be a, a classic already. <laughs> You're very kind. Uh, yeah, we met him at his office in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts and sat down. And I think uh, anyone who really who really wants to know how something gets from nothing to something will find this uh, uh, very Robert's interesting. Pleasure so to be sitting without in your further ado, here's here the show. Cambridge today. Uh, you're up to some really cool stuff. I've known you for years and very excited today to talk to you about uh, your latest work and shenanigans and nonsense. Um, who are you? Could you introduce yourself um, and what do you do? Yeah, so uh, first of all, it is great to have you here. Um, my name is Bruce Smith, and I grew up in Canada. Um, I moved to the United States when I was a young man, uh, following my um, my heart to Chicago, and have been uh, doing entrepreneurial stuff uh, since then, um, and also have been really involved in the rowing community, and uh, finally arrived at uh, this place where we're able to put together, you know, both the entrepreneurial. Uh, spirit and also some venture capital behind making rowing the most popular sport in the United States. How did you get into rowing? And that is a very, very humble introduction, and I appreciate that. You're the legendary head of Community Rowing Inc., or you really did bring rowing and the sport of rowing to large audiences uh, across Boston. How did you get into rowing? And after that, how did you... What made you think we should take this sort of sport, often misunderstood, often like sort of maligned or, or caricatured, and we need to get as many people as possible doing this? Well, why? Yeah, I think, you know, I was looking for like the smallest pool that I could possibly be in so I could be a giant fish. Um, <laughs> uh, kidding. I mean, the, overall, you know, I started rowing at McGill in my third year of college, and I spent a lot of years in college. I really liked college a lot. Um, 
And in Canada, it's not like the United States where there's a clear varsity system. Basically, it's, it's much more like the UK or Europe where if you're going to college, if you're enrolled, you can participate in a sport and sports really operate like club sports in the United States. So I got involved, um, you know, I was sitting on a rowing machine in the gym and I got recruited by the president of the McGill uh, Rowing Club and I got involved in the rowing club and I thought it was really fun. And there's something, um, if you play the piano, which I do, uh, or you like math or you like repetitive motion, there's something really, really compelling about the rowing motion. And so I got, um, I got kind of obsessed with it and tried very hard to make the Canadian national team and did not make the team. Mm. And as a result, I think I just, I had this constant itch that I wanted to scratch. So my plan in, um, my plan when I, when I left school and moved to Chicago was that I was going to go to Chicago, train really hard on my own and storm back to Canada and, and claim the bow seat of the Canadian men's aid in 1997 after all the good rowers retired <laughs> after the, after the Olympics. And Instead, in Chicago, I started coaching and got involved in uh, some entrepreneurial stuff and also ended up trying to build boathouses in Chicago. And it's a testament to what a great city that is that, you know, within five years, we had built a couple of boathouses. Really? And this, yeah, it's just, it's like, uh, it's a really cool town where people are super open to uh, foreigners <laughs> and um, don't hold it against you if you're Canadian. And so we, <laughs> you know, I, I got involved coaching a high school crew and a master's crew and, uh, had a really great time and got like a crash course in American politics and how, uh, first how to not get things done. Cause I think I made about a hundred proposals before we actually got approvals, but then eventually did, um, work with, uh, some really cool people to build a boathouse for Loyola Academy in Skokie, Illinois, and to build a floating boathouse, uh, downtown at North Avenue on the Chicago river. Can I jump in there? How do you not get things done? What is the best way to not get something done? Uh, Big idea. We want to take it. It seems like we have a constituency. We got to engage with the public uh, government at a certain, or the state or local government at a certain level. What's the best way to make sure that tanks? Um, I have a tremendous knack for uh, tanking things quickly. Um, and it involves me telling people how great my idea is. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can, I'm, I'm an expert on that and, uh, I still do it, uh, despite having my head, you know, beat in a, a whole bunch of times. So, um, the best way to not get anything done is to not listen, I, in, in my opinion. And it took me, you know, many, many, many iterations to finally learn, um, that the best way to get stuff done is really to ask people questions about what they think about your idea. So, you know, one or two sentences and then what do you think is, I think that's like the the most strategic and best use of anybody's time. And then you can actually start to build consensus. But if you go in, I, as, as I did many, many times saying, hey, rowing is like the best thing you can do for your imagination. It's the best thing you can do for your brain. It's the best thing you can do to make friends for your community. Um, you know, and, and I would go on and on and I'd say, you know, let's all build a boathouse together and people would be like, hell to the no. <laughs> um, you know, I have my concerns over here and, and you're um, you're just an idiot. And so it, it really, it took me a lot of tries to figure out how to, how to listen more carefully to other people. Um, is this, is this, sorry to jump in, is this like, I think there's a lot of people who assume that once the, once you make the facts clear in an argument, like, no, 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 no don't you know, rowing does this, this, right. this, and this. If you yeah. can just sort of present those, the data speaks for itself and then all rational human beings simply follow the data to build some beautiful thing. 
I know it's so straightforward, isn't it? Like, like <laughs> this is clearly like, no. Yeah. This is like a triple win. Like, right. it benefits you, it benefits me, and it benefits the community. Like, there's no like we can just skip the discussion and go right to like how do we do this? Right. And um, that is just the opposite of how to how to get things done. And I actually I had this amazing experience working uh, with a developer in uh, Florida. Uh, a guy named Randy Benderson, who's built the Nathan Benderson World Rowing Championship course in Sarasota, Florida. And so this guy is unbelievably successful, owns like uh, tens of millions of uh, square feet of commercial real estate around the country. And he goes into every single meeting, it doesn't matter who it's with, saying, please tell me what we're doing wrong. <laughs> and he has every reason to tell people what they should be doing because he really is incredibly successful himself. But all he ever does is walk into meetings and say, like, so, I really, really want to hear. And he's completely sincere. He really wants to hear from everybody, top to bottom, about, uh, about what, their, what their plans are and how, how to do them better. And he listens really carefully. And as a result, when he goes to build a Walmart or, um, you know, a CVS in a town that doesn't want one, you know, by the, by the end of their permit process, everybody's on board because he's listened so carefully to everybody's concerns. Hmm. And the project is better, you know. So... Right. Um, I think that was like probably the the biggest thing on how not to get things done, and I really am an expert on not getting things done. <laughs> well, you it seems like you learned your lessons because you then leveraged this not only to coach with the U.S. Olympic team, and you're you're a, practically a fixture of U.S. World Rowing uh, World Rowing Federation in general, but also um, CRI, the Harry Parker Boathouse. Uh, that that would I mean I just. Having any uh, understanding whatsoever of how much it takes to get a little thing done, I can't imagine going with a extraordinarily big complex, big ticket item and building on the water, but you got it all done. Building on the water is definitely very challenging, I think, in every country. Um, you know, water rights are, they have a really long history. Um, you know, there's a ton of case law surrounding water rights and mm. uh, access to the water. And the permitting authorities that are attached to uh, water, really, you know, it's, it's foundational to human existence. And there's a, you know, Mike Spracklin, a famous rowing coach, who said, you know, people just love to be next to water. And you look at how the world is organized, and A, it was a great method of transportation, but even after railways got started and highways became a thing, people still love to be next to water. You can't take humans away from water. And it's... Um, it just poses a huge challenge for communities when they start to give up more uh, water's edge. You know, those riparian rights are really critical for every every community. So, getting stuff done on those in those locations and getting it done without a lot of capital um, is really really difficult. And so, you really have to provide a pu public benefit. And if you understand that, then the pathway gets a lot clearer and you can actually accomplish something. But if you if you think you're going to go in and build something just for one community or for one constituency, it's just not going to work because everybody really owns that water sheet, you know, and mm -hmm. it's really, it's critical. And that applies equally, you know, in Iraq, um, you know, in Canada, here in the United States, in every town and country, uh, county, uh, you've got issues of uh, drainage and water access for irrigation and all of the attendant pollution concerns around water. Uh, it's really, it's a really, um, it's a thorny issue. So building access for rowing communities has been, um, you know, really an education in, in how to take everybody's concerns um, and meet all of those concerns, you know, with a, with a really solid plan. And now you've taken all that and then the last year 
you are the founder and chief executive officer of True Rowing Crew. Uh, yeah, there's some which, debate about our actual title. So the, the company <laughs> name is Crew. We're incorporated as Crew by True Rowing, Got and uh, we're building a rowing machine that we have recently christened, like within like the last week, uh-huh. uh, the Hydro, H-Y-D-R-O-W, which is a little bit cheesy, but we think um, is also catchy, and you can check it out on hydro.com, Okay, which is a huge benefit. So we'll get into the product in a second, but yeah. first I wanna, I wanna tease out, uh, what are the differences between being a founder and a chief executive officer? Uh, being a founder, I assume you just sort of have to be partially insane or delusional to think that you have an idea that you could actually push into the world and, and make happen and you need to sort of satisfy all those different constituencies and get people on board. And then chief executive officer, it's like, this is every day you have to now make it happen. Uh, is there a tension between those two roles or, or do they just go hand in hand? No, I, um, I mean, it's sort of, you know, like well-known business truism that founders don't make good CEOs. Um, I don't really, uh, you know, running a, running a 20 person company is, is, um, pretty close to, you know, pretty close to, you know, the wild blue yonder still. Um, I think that being a founder definitely requires, um, like some element of delusion and grandiosity. Uh, and if you, if you don't have that, like if you don't believe on some level that you're right about something, then you absolutely can't be a founder. And it's just extremely stressful and you have to uh, be willing to jump off a cliff without any kind of net. And if the, you know, if there was a net there, then 18 people would have already jumped. So you really have to believe in something. And I, to me, that's the most valuable quality. And like the people that I like being around are people who believe in something to that degree that they're actually willing to go to the edge. And, you know, there's an upside and a downside. So those, like, if you're crazy enough to believe in something, it frequently means that you also do not see reality very well. And um, I think that's the, you know, really great founders are people who um, can survive that cognitive dissonance between believing something that is not there yet and that has no evidence. And so they have, they have just faith in their ability to see something uh, that other people can't see. And then also the ability to take in the reality of the situation and understand that they're real, (coughs) excuse me, they're real gaps. Um that you have to explain to people and walk them through and, and actually be able to see the gaps in your own idea and your own faith. And, and it's just, it's, it's a crazy tension. And I think something that, uh, most people have not really tried to understand very well. Um, Harry Parker is a really famous rowing coach, not to talk about rowers because they basically are completely irrelevant, you know, to almost everything because there are so <laughs> few of them, but Harry won, uh, more contests uh, in his collegiate uh, coaching career. Sorry, this is the legendary uh, yeah. coach at Harvard for decades. Yeah, yeah. He passed away a few years ago, and I did not know him very well, but I, I knew him at the at the end of his career. And so he won eighty three percent of his uh, competitions, which uh, even I don't I think he passed John Wooden. Like he's he, you know he is really unbelievable, and his um, his career spanned fifty two years. You know. Uh, unbelievable. Just unbelievable. And so the world changed radically. So when he started, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he had this extraordinary level of authority and respect. And then the world changed, and rowing really became secondary, and uh, then tertiary, and then almost invisible. But he continued to evolve 
as recruiting tactics changed, as the money in the sport changed, Harry evolved. And so on the one hand, he was this monomaniacal crazy man who <laughs> pulled the very best out of young men to make them just work unbelievably hard and do exactly what he wanted them to do. And on the other hand, he was able to change his understanding of reality and change his own behavior in a way that adapted to the times. And he was just, you know, he's like a killer shark who, at least in the first part of his career, drew uh, an incredible amount of ire from his <laughs> competitors. And, you know, people didn't like him very much, but he, he was able to evolve and change. So he was like a crazy narcissist in some ways, but he was also able to take in new information and adapt. And that's kind of, that's what I try and do is uh, really see clearly like, okay, the reality of the situation is we don't have any money and we have, we have a crazy idea and there's no, uh, there's no hope. And yet, <laughs> and yet, you know, okay, we're going to push forward and, and jump off the cliff anyway and, you know, quit my job and go do this thing. I love it. Uh, there's a book by Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, the yeah. BC firm, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he says, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, um, the there are only two emotions for people in the line of work you just described. It is pure euphoria and existential terror. And there's almost <laughs> nothing in between. It, right. Would you, is that about right? And yeah. in handling that cognitive dissonance, that's the hardest thing, right? To yeah. Be, when, when should you be happy right. about what you've accomplished and when should you, you know where all the bodies are buried and everything yeah. you've built, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. It really is. It's, uh, and there's just, you know, it's day-to-day -day grind. Like, my, um, I wouldn't say he's my favorite writer, but he's, like, top five. Joseph Conrad, um, you know, uh, became a sea captain and uh, in a foreign language, which is pretty hard. He was Polish, and he learned to be a sea captain. He got his uh, master's certificate in England and uh, then wrote books in English as a, as a Polish native speaker, which is just unbelievable. But he talked about the, you know, the work, which is... Um, incredibly tedious like especially on a ship like sailing a you know sailing a ship across the ocean is like wildly tedious right and just being uh he called it a knitting machine you know just working on the knitting machine and i think that's the like the euphoric parts like hey we just got funding or we just made the machine work or we just streamed a live class or like those things like those little pops are great and the terror you know, is also in some ways great because it fires up your adrenal glands and makes you go hard. But like the, the, you know, the 11 or 12 hours in between those things or the 20 hours between those things, like that work happening and being able to sustain that is, I think one of the, just one of the key things about, um, you know, success. Like if you're, if you're going to do this crazy thing, you have the euphoria, you have the terror, and then you also have to be able to grind you know, and mm -hmm. the rowers grind, like that's one of the great things about rowing is you definitely learn how to do that. So, <laughs> uh, so as you're sort of how to, it's a perfect bridge. You, you're sort of grinding away on the day to day with the sort of strategic vision in mind for where all this grinding should roughly end you up. What yeah. have you built? Uh, what have you, what's your, you've spent the last year launching this company, uh, what, what do we got and what are you working on? Yeah, so it's uh, really simple. It's a rowing machine um, that looks a lot like it would belong in the Jetsons, um, you know. <laughs> it's super cool. It's got a very, very sleek line that is reminiscent of a boat or a seal, depending on your anthropomorphism or your relationship to boats. Um, so it's a beautiful looking machine. It belongs in your living room uh, or your den. 
and it doesn't make any noise, but it does have a variable res resistance mechanism that makes it really, really pleasurable to row. And above all, it has a device on the front of it, a big screen that delivers the river uh, or the lake or the body of water directly to you with the sounds and sights and coaching of a, of a really, really great rower who's very passionate about what they do. So it's a, we think it's a super cool machine and uh, the interest in it has been overwhelmingly positive. So, yeah. yeah. You've described it as a, uh, in other interviews, as continuing the Peloton revolution. Yeah, that... absolutely. And, you know, we love Peloton, like God bless them for opening this up. Um, overall, like the reason we're here is that I believe that rowing offers people a genuine opportunity to connect. And it took me, so I've been rowing and coaching crew for like, I don't know, 25 years now, 30 years. And um, there is really good brain science that shows the people who do things together, like synchronous motion, um, build trust. And you can see that, uh, especially in armies, you know, there's a reason that armies didn't say, hey, I will meet you in Sparta. You know, they like <laughs> marched, you know, together, Right. Uh, I guess from Sparta. And um, doing that, doing that thing together, walking together in time builds trust and empathy with the, per the person beside you. And similarly, rowing, you know, moving your hips in time with the person in front of you and behind you builds this level of trust and empathy that is kind of irreplaceable. It happens in a pre-conscious place in your brain, and there's good brain science behind it. But it really is this opportunity for people to rebuild some of that trust and connection that is just being chipped away at every year. And the more time you spend with your screen and the more time you spend isolated, the worse you feel. And what is the, you know, what's the best thing that I could do as a human being to help other human beings feel better about themselves? And uh, that was, you know, that was the motivation for the company. I just, like if somebody could tell me something else that would build more trust, I would do that. So, so that is the highest goal, ignoring the fact that rowing, it delivers an literally almost unbeatable workout. It, uh, it's, uh, you know, certainly mental discipline, physical discipline, yeah. all these things. But the, the highest level order thing for you is this trust, empathy, yeah. connection. Absolutely. Really. I started reading um, just about, you know, I don't know where I came across it. There are some longevity studies. Why do people live a long time? And the key factor, you know, it's not diet. It's not like the Mediterranean diet or olive oil or a glass of red wine. It's actually the feeling of connection that people have. And um, when you start to read studies from the Pew Foundation about how alienated people feel and how alienation is increasing, mm -hmm. and that's despite all of the all of the crazy social media that's available to people. So, you know, everybody is connected 24-7 and theoretically knows exactly what their friends are doing and where they're doing it mm -hmm. all the time, but they, they feel worse. And it just, it has profound implications for everything, you know, life. The health of a society. Uh, li yeah, yeah, life expectancy, our ability to make good decisions. And I think a lot about the model of the, you know, the tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. and how do you get people to make decisions that are not in their personal best interest in the short run but are in everybody's, including their best interest in the long run. And what I see developing in society is just this horrible nexus of concerns where the tragedy of the commons is actually coming to hit us in our daily lives. So we're not able to make decisions in favor of the environment. We're not able to make decisions in favor of public education. And 
I think it's because people feel more alienated and more separate from their fellow human beings. And we have to do something. And I used to think it was stories, like storytelling was the key to that, like building those connections and building that common understanding. Right. But I actually think it's got to be much more comprehensive. I think it has to be um, not just what happens in your mind, but a mind-body connection. And for better or worse, like rowing is the only tool that I can come up with to try and solve that problem. So we're going all in on this on this sort of ridiculous sport. So you're, So this is not about sort of a... Uh, weight loss or fitting into a, a fitness trend going on in the U.S. Though you'll certainly be a part of that. Yeah, this no, is, you're you're really thinking. I mean, that's the highest level explanation I've ever heard for almost any product. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> like, right. and and even yeah. bearing in mind the usual sort of eye rolling Silicon Valley optimism. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, uh, which um, I mean, I do have a talent for that, and my <laughs> initials are BS, which I think you know. So you take everything I say with a grain of salt, but that truthfully, like, that's what I believe. Like, yeah. I can't. Um, I can't come up with a better thing. And those secondary benefits are, are just, they're wonderful. Like they make it that much more likely that we'll be successful because it rowing does use 86% of your body's muscles and it does improve the strength of your uh, spine and your, uh, your bones. So if, if you sit on a bike for an hour a day for a year, uh, at the end of the year, you will have some level of osteoporosis because there is no on-off constriction of the muscles and your bones actually weaken. If you really? sit, yeah, if you sit on a rowing machine for an hour a day, at the end of a year, your bones will be stronger, you know? And uh, not only will you have a great aerobic system, but you'll also have improved your strength. And you will have used 86%, so 550 of your muscles in your body will have turned on and off. And there's this cool thing that happens with rowing. So most sports, the body is on continuously. So if you're running, if you're on a bike, if you're uh, doing anything like rock climbing, whatever it is, you're on all the time. Rowing, your muscles are on for about 0.8 or 0.9 seconds, and then they're off for 0.8, 0.91 seconds, something like that. So on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. Do that a whole bunch of times, and you have a very profound positive impact on the structure and content of your muscles and skeleton. And that's just, it's a, it's a special thing. And there is nothing else. I was like going to say, is there, is what, yeah. what's the next closest thing? Is, is there something? There is nothing. Rowing you know. is unique. Yep. Uh, it's really, so it's, it's a really special tool and it's been hiding in plain sight for right. like a century and a half. Yeah. My, uh, uh, I have family members who've who've coached um, and coached populations, and I mean your your track record on this expands decades. Um, but uh, there seems to be an astonishing effect. This this is rowing chauvinism here for a yeah. second, but there's, there really does seem to be an astonishing effect. And a lot of people, I think, get it get it backwards of sort of like you know successful people row, and it's like rowers become yeah, successful I know. people. There's uh, definitely, um, I know a lot of business people who hire rowers right. specifically because they know that they cooperate well and they work really hard and they tend to be kind and kind people. You know, like it's just it's a nice population of people, and. Um, you know, we'll see if that scales. Uh, <laughs> right. at, at the very least, you know, at the very least, people will burn twice as many calories in half the time and mm-hmm. hopefully have a really great time doing it. And, um, you know, if the first rule is do no harm, then we're at least delivering some physical benefit. And if these psychosocial benefits are real, um, you know, that's, that's really what it's about. And there's this other piece about competitive models that I find super compelling. So there are three kinds of competition. So, um, 
there's positive sum, uh, equals you know zero sum and negative sum competition. Okay. And um, in one kind of analysis, you could say that uh, football or hockey or lacrosse are negative sum competitions. Two teams enter the field. The only way for us to determine a winner is for one team to make the other team lose. And the team that wins has to physically hurt themselves to take that win. So, you know, Tom Brady may win the game or the Super Bowl, but he has also accumulated another three hits to his head that is going to make his speech slur when he's 55. Mm -hmm. So that's the only way that you can win in a, in a conflict-based sport or a violence-based sport. Um, with a positive-sum sport like rowing or track and field or swimming, you can put you know, as many teams as you want on the field. So in rowing, there are six lanes, so there are six teams that go down the track at the Olympics. All six of those people or those crews or those teams can have a personal record in the final race. One person still wins, but everybody has come to the table and may have produced, hopefully has produced, their personal record. So everybody leaves in a better state than when they entered. You know, you you have lost the race, but you may have overachieved and done your personal best. And to me, like, that's the kind of competition that we want to foster, where people understand competition not as something that is negative and destructive, that involves taking something away from the other person or the other group. It's something that lifts everybody up and by everybody bringing their best effort to the table, everybody gets better. <laughs> and that was the competitive model, I think, before two world wars happened. And <laughs> rowing used to be the most popular sport in the United States. And, you know, tens of thousands of people would go and watch rowing races. Right. And then, you know, the world happened, and pollution happened, and millions of people got killed in wars, and then football became the dominant meme. And um, I want to get in there and dig around in kids' imaginations and give them a reason to root for their rowing team and start to replace, or at least put back on equal footing, a different kind of competitive model that involves everybody doing their best, everybody putting their best foot forward, and everybody to some degree benefiting. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is just, it's, it's really critical and can't be overstated because that imaginative space where people live, like that's how those decisions get made. And when it comes to negotiating, like, okay, we're going to put this much money in the school system, you know, on a city council or, a, you know, a state council and everybody has to, you know, figure out a way to compromise. Like it, we can't go to that win-lose model. We have to go to the win-win-win model. And... Uh, people have to approach problems with that mindset. And I don't know of another way to get into people's imagination. So I'm trying this way. I, I love it. I, uh, the thought that rowing was ever popular uh, has sort of uh, popped up here now and then uh, among my own rowing career. And I remember learning that in the 60s and 70s, my high school had to stop busing people to rowing matches because they were getting too belligerent. <laughs> I didn't know anyone in my high school who knew we had a rowing team, so I, I, the thought that anybody cared about this sport, it, uh, that's fascinating. So you've, you've uh, so walking through the sort of founding entrepreneur process, let's say you've now convinced a few other people of your idea. In your case, you've uh, secured millions of dollars to, to back this idea, which is an incredible achievement. Congratulations for that. How, how do you build a team? What, what do you look for? Yeah. Other than other rowers, yeah, no, no. What, what do you look for and what's important? Um, 
So our team has really been built around this idea that uh, we're doing something really positive for the world, and or we're trying to, you know, like this. This is our best shot at doing something really positive, and uh, all of the people we have an unbelievable leadership team. Um, I look around and I'm like, uh, like these are grown ups, and I feel like a kid. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, every conversation has started with, um, you know, why we're doing this thing, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really uh, we have very, you know, very uh, disparate group of people. So we have. You know, we have a chief technical technical officer who's like straight up services software expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a guru here in, in Massachusetts who's who's been in ten startups. Um, so he's got the computer world, like, and that's his. That's like he was there in the early days with uh, Lotus One Two Three, and he's like he's really he's done been around pi- the block. Yeah, yeah, well, in pioneering work in mm-hmm. uh, you know database management, services, software stuff. So. And then we've got a like a hardware guy who's built products his whole life, and we have a marketing person who's like straight up marketing, and we've got a you know crazy rowing person who handles all of our content, and uh, they're really they're just really different skill sets. And so the particular fun part about our business is that we're really four companies. We're yeah. Could you talk about that? You just you just laid it yeah. out. You're building not only a piece of software where I think many people sort of broadly can understand okay coders engineers we need to build things and yeah. publish an app but you're also be building something particularly cool that you can touch it's tangible it's a, yeah it's a hardware yeah right. um, and how do you manage all that um well no and i think it's yeah. like on the one hand so the four you know the four different companies yeah. uh the software the hardware the content and the marketing all have uh pretty different agendas mm-hmm. and different priorities and they would like to spend our money differently and bringing those people together around a common goal is um, super, super fun. And as long as we keep our eye on what we're trying to accomplish, you know, so far it's worked really, really well. Uh, and it's definitely a place where there is a lot of, um, I would say, passionate disagreement, you know, mm-hmm. about uh, what we need to do first, second, and third, and fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also this huge opportunity for creativity and, uh, you know, informing our user experience with what's happening out in the water mm-hmm. and having our, our marketing pitches driven by this genuine commitment to what the company is about and having the hardware reflect all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it is unbelievably satisfying and fun to have all of those different facets of um, you know human life basically reflected and human experience reflected in one place. And we all come together in one office and we all argue loudly, uh, pretty much all day long, in order to get to the get to the end goal. But it's it's so much fun because there is this diversity of experience, and um, it's really it's it's kind of like living. You know, it is living our values every day, <laughs> right? Because uh, we really do have to compromise. Uh, you know, on a minute by minute basis, and decide like, okay, it's okay to give that up because, you know, they need that over where over there on the hardware side, or it's okay to give that up on the water because we know that. Marketing needs this, you know, you get the picture. So yeah. there's just, all it is is one giant compromise. And uh, the, you know, the question is, can we build something beautiful, like genuinely beautiful out of that compromise? And I think uh, there are a few companies that have managed to do that. Um, we would love to join that group and, uh, you know, try, trying really hard. What? You're, you were just showing me your product in the in the other room with these beautiful videos and the skipping to the end. What a user will be able to do is 
uh, sit on one of these machines and actually follow a rower. Yeah. Uh, and not just any rower. These are incredibly credentialed and accomplished and often award-winning, uh, medal-winning yeah. uh, uh, athletes. Um, how do you bridge, or what have the challenges been trying to take something that's in the real world, this is water and a boat yeah. and video cameras uh, and yeah. you know production team, uh, and what are the challenges, if any, that have occurred trying to translate that experience into somebody sitting in their, in their living room on a rowing machine? Yeah, I mean, sitting out on the water at 5.30 in the morning in a boat with seven other people and flying down the river with the sun coming up is just the most extraordinary experience as a human being. It, I hate getting up early in the morning and I chose the wrong, um, you know, the wrong uh, sport to coach because uh, I've been awake many, many, many mornings at 4.30 in the morning when I really did not want to be awake. But being able to uh, even try to deliver a little bit of that experience to people who otherwise would never have the opportunity mm-hmm. is so much fun. And so the, the first thing we did was we, uh, we dug really hard for uh, a director and a DOP, director of photography, who could really frame the moment. And mm-hmm. so we're not, you know, we're not starting from scratch. Like people have been creating beautiful cinem- cinematograph- cin- cinematography for, you know, the past century. So we wanted to stand on those shoulders. Uh, so we got this guy, William Huber, who is just an unbelievably talented photographer, uh, to be our director and director of photography and so he is able to actually capture what's outside and put it onto a screen and he's he's spent his whole career you know doing that so starting from that place and it's so it's not a mechanical thing where we're like hey you know we're gonna we're gonna film this thing from beginning to end um and record voice and sound but we are actually creating art every day out there on the water and getting better and better at it and the way i think about it you know like if you go, you know, into a into a museum like the like the MFA here in Boston, and you look at these beautiful, huge paintings, the oil paintings, and I think uh, there's like a popular perception now that um, you know there was a painter who like painted that thing, and that's not what happened. Like there was a huge workshop with a ton of people who were sketch artists and you know knew how to mix oil paints, and you know the the artist directed that whole piece. But there were a lot of hands involved in that, and we are really we're going for that level of beauty, understanding that it is a group effort, and um, we're really, you know, we're really, really committed to capturing what is out there, understanding the level of art and the, the number of pieces that have to come together. It's a lot like a it's a lot like a movie or a TV show. Mm-hmm. Speaking of getting the pieces together, this is a sort of a more uh, technical question, just on. When you're building your team, you obviously you advertise on job boards. Just walk me through the mechanics of how this actually happens. Oh, how do you yeah. find great people? And then what is the balance, particularly at a startup where, hey, we have a super cool idea and this could blow up into a billion dollar plus company. Peloton's value yeah. more than four billion now yeah, or something. Yeah, it's like four point something billion. Right. Yeah. It could, you could be an early piece. You could have a small piece of something that could be huge versus a salary. And do you, is that all managed on a case by case basis? Here's some equity mm-hmm. for jumping in or any thoughts on that? I was, you know, I was looking back at all the paperwork yesterday. Um, and it is remarkably uniform in terms of, um, how people, uh, ended up being compensated. And so everybody owns a substantial portion of the company and it's great to get in early. Uh, that's, and it's a known sort of ecosystem, but truthfully, um, 
we haven't hired anybody from advertising. And this, I think this is the hardest thing. So, okay, you have a great idea, and then how do you actually make it happen? Um, and it's definitely like, I haven't raised a single penny from a cold call, and I haven't hired anybody without being introduced to them through either an acquaintance or a friend. <laughs> and I'm not really sure what that means, but it's basically <laughs> like you find one, I call it the quality mafia. And so you find one really great person and hold on to them like grim death and give them whatever they need to come with you on your journey. <laughs> and then once you find that one great person, then they know about 20 or 30 really great people really well. And so they, you know, you put out the call to those 20 or 30 great people that you need another person. And they're like, oh yeah, you need a, X, they're like, oh, I met somebody, or I know somebody, or I worked with somebody in the last company, and you pull that thread, and you keep uh, being really generous and, and honest with people, and you become part of that quality network. And so I didn't grow up here. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, I'm, I, I did a company in Chicago. I've ne I never did a company here in, in Boston or Cambridge, but somehow we have managed to, you know, really, even with all of the cross-functionality, like attract people whose resumes are unbelievably world-class and it's just it's all part of that network and it was all through introductions wow. and I think it's super daunting like if you're sitting at home with a great idea mm -hmm. you're like damn how does this even start and um, that germination is uh, kind of a it's like a miracle or magic or something and if you get to that point then your chance of success goes from like one in a hundred to one in ten yeah. So, and what about funding? Uh, you've raised now five million. You, it looks like you have millions more on the way. That's very impressive. Is it? Um, and I guess it would depend, of course, by what the person is trying to do. But is it find one rich person and get them to just sort of buy wholeheartedly into your into your idea, or do you build a coalition? Or is, any I thoughts think, on that? I think it happens differently for different people. Yeah. Um, you know, some things fit really neatly into a venture capital model, and you get one venture capitalist to believe in you a little bit. Um, we were about to go down the road with uh, an angel investor who wanted uh, a little less than half the company for $500,000, and wow. that would have been a, you know, a great start. Like We would have uh, been able to do some drawings and put ourselves on the road with VCs and start to build that model and I was just incredibly fortunate because in my you know in my previous lives I had um, gotten to know and earned the trust of some uh, private equity guys and uh, they knew me well enough to say like oh you really you, you really want to do this idea you believe in it okay tell me why and uh, they looked at Peloton and they looked at what we were trying to do and the market opportunity and so they you know, they funded us at a much higher level, and so we were able to start with a company valuation of $10 million mm -hmm. and uh, sell part of the company uh, based on that valuation. So that was, a, that was a huge leg up, and that was, a, you know, that's just because I'm old. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> 49 years old, and I've, I've worked uh, really hard in some other places and, and was fortunate to get to know these people. So there was, a, there was an element of trust there. Um, it's definitely, you know, I am most familiar with bootstrapping, and mm -hmm. not taking any money, but just putting mm -hmm. in a few bucks and, and building it, you know, piece by piece. And uh, 
if this were not a hardware company, that's definitely what I would have done. Mm -hmm. But hardware is just really expensive. And, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to build something beautiful in the real world, it still takes an enormous amount of capital, despite all the computer power out there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we decided to go that route and really jump in with two feet and, and not bootstrap, but try and try and make a big change fast. And, um, you know, fast, cheap, and good, pick two. You're right. Uh, we, classic yeah, triangle. Yeah, we chose uh, fast and good. So <laughs> That's great. Um, getting into your your day-to-day -day habits, tools, bizarre eccentricities, um, what does a typical day look like for you Monday through Friday? Uh, what are you working on? And uh, after that, what, what tools are you using in a, on yeah. a day-to-day basis? How, how, right. do you, how do you do it? Is it just Word and Excel and emails or, or what? How, do you, how does yeah. this get done? Um, so I have a particular challenge communicating with people because my brain does not work in a linear fashion. And so that makes me confusing. Um, like when I try and explain what I'm doing, everybody just gets confused and, and annoyed. <laughs> so uh, I rely a lot on email because that is linear, you know, and it just, everything is tracked and it's super, I have the simplest system, um, it's Google and uh, I star emails that need responses and they stay starred until I respond. And my goal is to keep the starred list under 10. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, it's an utter failure. I'm usually around 10 or, you know, t between 10 and 50. Um, and I know if I'm if, I know if I'm at 50, then I am letting the people that I work with down. So I need to stay ahead of that, and I just work until those are done. Um, and beyond that, you know, um, I try really hard just to get stuff to people that they really need. And so if somebody needs to hire somebody, I try and get some more money, or I try and get some candidates. If somebody needs office space, I try and get that. If they need a computer, I try and get that. If they need more time. I try and figure out how to deleverage their jobs so that they have more time, and uh, talk with people a lot. I have a uh, a huge um, respect for the amount of communication that happens face to face, mm -hmm. and I find when things are not face to face uh, that uh, the mission gets lost really fast. People get annoyed really fast. But if you're if you're actually interacting face to face with your direct reports, then it works a lot better. And, and I don't know how it's going to scale, but I don't think we're ever going to get to more than a couple hundred people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, overall, I think that I'm sort of like that will work for this size company. And when you get to those really big companies, like you just you watch the productivity just decline like massively. Mm -hmm. And the reason, you know, like that kind of overhead for management, like. I'm just not into that. I think that that really sucks and companies shouldn't be that big. Um, if you have a giant company, then um, you know the overhead to do stuff just becomes so severe. And I have you know friends who work for Microsoft and Google and Amazon, and it is just like, like their lives suck. You know, like there's just, like they can't do anything. You know, like they're super smart, they're super creative, and they have their little pod that gives them some satisfaction. And then they have forms and triplicate, you know, and endless meetings and weird company directives. And it just destroys their lives. So I use Google, so I admire what they do. But I think that the, you know, smaller companies overall are, are better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, like a German company, like the way that their economy works just seems like much, much better. Where there is a high level of trust, a high level of integrity, and 
people work together like on a daily basis and they work there for their life and it's it's part of a vocation mm-hmm. and I, I really I value that part of the stuff so um, yeah to answer your question uh, email and then you know we use slack internally because that's fun and uh, makes me feel slightly um, you know more cool but uh, uh, beyond that you know I hate PowerPoints we use them when absolutely necessary um, and we really rely on the spoken word and, and putting things down in a well-constructed sentence uh, clarifies everybody's thinking and makes sure that the communication is rock-solid so I like I, I love that part of it do you have any tips or tricks on meetings some folks are like yep we're never gonna have a meeting longer than 20 minutes and everybody needs to show up prepared or is it hey yeah we can chat for two hours straight through if that's necessary case by case yeah so yeah there I uh, draw clear distinctions between different kinds of meetings so there are decision meetings and those should never take more than half an hour in my opinion if it's more than half an hour then you miss the point of the meeting mm-hmm, exactly. and there's not enough information you're uh, you're chasing your tail and you should not have that meeting um, if you need to uh, if you don't know what decision you're trying to make and you don't have the information for it then you have a different kind of meeting and I call those making meetings it's not my idea some somebody else came up with this but basically a making meeting um, you know is any like an hour is a minimum and uh, two and a half three hours if you're really getting into it if you really have to do some creative thinking and map stuff out and and learn how to share a brain and those are those are just different things and as long as you know which kind of meeting you're going to you're good but if you confuse those two things then you've just wasted everybody's time in a huge way so things often seem to die in yeah, meetings. they go right. to meetings and it's yeah. like death by committee and then we have six more meetings to discuss what we talked about and then we spend the first half of our next meeting talking about yeah. what we talked about right. the last meeting uh, right. yeah I also I have a uh, I'm very skeptical of uh, the ability to um, make really good decisions I think that making a decision is way better than trying to make a really good decision if you're going to make a decision in 20 minutes um, with reasonable facts if you spend another four hours on that decision it may or may not be better but it might improve by 10 percent but it's not going to be radically different and you just lost four hours and at what cost so it's just yeah. like don't let uh perfect be the enemy of yeah good. exactly like, yeah right. right and it's you know it's definitely a balance and you have to pick things that are really important to fight about and fight about those things and let those things carry the weight of the culture so that people understand like oh that one's really important because we fought about that one all of this other stuff like you decide in five or ten minutes and you just roll just roll with it um, and it also makes my days and other people's days hopefully a lot better like they're just way less painful you know (laughs) like okay we made a decision we're moving on we're not going to argue about which t-shirt to buy you know (laughs) and we may end up with a slightly less cool t-shirt but it's just you know okay two minutes done great move on what, what advice do you have for anyone looking to launch their own company? Don't uh, do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I would say uh, start early. You know, do it often. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's really, really, really fun. Uh, and the only thing, like, don't try and make money. You know, like, tr- do the thing that you believe in. And it's a, like, you know, what color is your parachute? All that bullshit that you heard from your parents. Um uh, hopefully if you had reasonable parents, um, like the, the money part of it is just so beyond irrelevant if you're trying to affect some positive change in the world. And then, uh, once you get that straight, then money is your secondary concern and, but it will flow. 
from the idea. Yeah, and if you if you don't have a good idea, and you you won't get any money. <laughs> so and, don't worry, it won't yeah, work. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's really you know to put your emphasis on the values and live those values um, is to me it makes the most sense. Um, I know investment bankers who deal in money, and they their only purpose is money, mm-hmm. and they. Um, they look with great envy on poorer people when they're 50 years old. You know, when they get to in their 50s and 60s and they look back, they're like, you're actually doing this thing in the world. And I was shuffling paper and I do have a giant house in Connecticut, but it's not uh, very satisfying. And it's because they just, they went for the gold ring. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I love making money. It's really, you know, money. <laughs> it is a validation that your idea is on the yeah. same thing, right? Well, and, and money is money is time and money is freedom. Um, and so that, you know, that it's definitely like, it's not like it's not a goal. It's a second goal, Mm -hmm. you know, first goal value, second goal money. And, um, and those things should hopefully, you know, if it's going to work, they, they are complementary to each other, not opposed to each other. Would the go back up to the, where you were talking in the beginning of the conversation about sort of higher, higher level things, the rates of entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm constantly surprised to discover are down substantially the number of people starting their own companies in their 20s and uh, 30s is is way off from the 1970s even though with the tools that we're using to do these things email slack yeah uh, they're sort of available to everybody yeah I have no idea I mean Millennials I I feel it's so odd uh, to meet 22 and 23 year old people and think that they are actually substantially different from me. Um, and I am just experiencing what my parents experienced. It's really, it's a crazy thing um, <laughs> to be a curmudgeon. But uh, the, um, the level of um, the, the assumed uh, good things that are gonna happen when you're 22 and 23 are like, it, when I was 22 or 23, it, things were not very good, and the assumption was you were going to suffer. And now the assumption is that things are actually like going to cruise okay, and my kids are pretty confident. And um, I think that that's, you know, we're at the end of a cycle, and they're going to suffer. Um, and that hopefully will produce another bout of creativity mm-hmm. uh, for the United States and the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think a lot about Dostoevsky and uh, University of Chicago and, um, you know, creativity after the war. So these people who are suffering a lot, like University of Chicago, if you work at University of Chicago, you are surrounded by this unbelievably violent, really poor neighborhood. And yet they produce the greatest number of Nobel Prize winners. Um, you know, you're Fyodor Dostoevsky and you can't write what you want but you write the, you know, some of the greatest novels in the history of time because you're under this extreme pressure. Mm-hmm. And those are just two anecdotes, and I have no idea if they hold true over like a broader spectrum, but it seems to me like that creativity comes out of some level of discomfort mm-hmm. and um, you know, cognitive dissonance or pain or something that is happening in people's lives that is not comfortable that produces the creativity. Is this the Nassim Taleb sort of anti-fragile, if you're familiar with that argument, was that he's yeah. trying to look into his home country of Lebanon and why it produces all these yeah. ex- way exactly. higher than it should, right. number of ex- you know, category accomplished person, yeah. um, the stress to a certain point right. um, pushes in, in this direction. 
And it's definitely, it's got to be the right kind of stress, I think. Right. But, uh, or maybe not the right kind. It has to come with the right kinds of support or the right, you have to, the response to the stress has to be guided, you know. Um, and people have to have some level of optimism um, that things could change, you know. Uh, but overall, I, I, I definitely believe in that, uh, believe in that stress. And, um uh, it's a, it, I mean, it's completely fascinating. I don't know, you know, the, the whole creative process is just like, how do things germinate and why do they have life? Um, that's why Cormac McCarthy's uh, book, The Road, is just so profoundly disturbing because it suggests that there could be an end to that, you know, wellspring of life where like life just stops being produced on every level. And it does seem like, you know, AI could figure out that formula to stop life. Um, in the, you know, like not tomorrow, but 50 years from now when quantum computers are just making all our decisions for us, they'll just figure out like, oh, if we stop this particular thought process, then that's the end of creativity in life. And, um, it's, that is truly terrifying to me. And, and, um, poets have been writing about it for centuries and let me, you know, let me sing to you about the ways of, uh, God, uh, two men, you know, John Milton. And it's really, um, I'm, I just try and surf that and try not to, uh, try not to break it, you know. Do you, last, last question or two, do you have a uh, favorite piece of work, uh, a book, piece of music, piece of art, uh, that you regularly refer to or that you would recommend other people read? Yeah, there, so you want to be a complete human being. There are two things, um, I will just be completely didactic on this. There are two things that you have to do. Uh, you have to read John Milton's Paradise Lost multiple times and a short biography of John Milton. And uh, there were these um, reprobates and rogues at the first, in the first part of the 20th century who popularized uh, Shakespeare over John Milton. He used to be like the man. Mm-hmm. And then uh, T.S. Eliot and, and these guys really like, like tried to take him down and did these complete character assassinations of this guy uh wrote biographies that were like completely fictionalized that made him sound like an ogre and they just they said that Shakespeare was like the natural talent and Milton was the guy but actually Milton is the guy and I used to um have a small graffiti campaign John Milton for president uh (laughs) so you need to read John Milton a lot um and then Anna Karenina I read Anna Karenina um like every year uh, every couple of years at the most. And I, I probably have read it, I don't know, 18 times now. And what does that give you? Uh, it's just like a complete compendium of all of the potential intellectual responses, emotional responses, human responses to the existential challenges that we face as human beings. And so it's a little bit like the Bible. Like it's a complete story because it catalogs in every character what you could respond, how you can respond to life. And it's so wonderful to go and live with Vronsky and to live with Levin and to go through Anna's trouble and to see how Peter Oblonsky responds and to understand and all of the all of the minor characters each play their role too in those responses, uh, you know, Levin's brother and understanding all of the responses that you could have gives you an opportunity to like sort of re-choose and um, like start again in your own life to be like, okay, I, you know, I respond to the eternal darkness with this choice. And the reasons I make this choice are because of these. And, you know, Trotsky just, um, or not Trotsky, but the, the book 
gives you uh, Trotsky. How did that get in there? <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, the the book gives you this catalog of responses, and and it really it it helps me clarify my thinking a lot. And also, it's just like such a great story, you know, best story ever. And uh, I really I really enjoy reading it too. So I think if you do those two things, like John Milton gives you the history of the world, and the history of intellectual thought from beginning to end, and really is a perfect catalog. And you know, you could say that John Milton is the end of history, arguably. And um, then if you read Anna Karenina, you have your, your catalog of responses that you can go shopping with and choose which one you want. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Very fascinating. This is uh, Bruce Smith. And uh, yeah, I guess, Les, where, where can we follow your work? Where can we learn oh. more about what you're doing? Do you have a blog? Are you on Twitter? Or what's your company website? Um, yeah, just buy our machine, please. Uh, <laughs> and you can, uh, you, you know, pre-sales start in October and, and just go to hydro.com, H-Y-D-R-O-W, and you'll be able to see the product of this amazing group of people and the art that we're trying to do. Incredible. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks, Matt. For our listeners, if you heard a reference to something, a book or a website or an article, the full show notes with links to everything we talked about in the show can be found at sourcesandmethods.com. If you enjoyed what you heard this week and in previous episodes, please consider writing a review of the show in iTunes or on Twitter or in real life. Thanks for listening.